Well, good morning, Encounter Church. I invite you to join in your uh, to turn in your Bibles to the book of First Peter. First Peter is uh, where we find ourselves. You probably uh, had the book of Acts was well worn uh, into your Bible that you would just open it and it would automatically open to the book of Acts. Well, if that's the case, just turn a bit further toward the back, and we are, as mentioned a couple times already, we're beginning a new teaching series here in the book of. First Peter, if you're using one of the Bibles, uh, there at your chair, you'll find it on page 1727. 1727, you'll find the book of Hebrews first, and then James, and then First Peter. If you hit Second Peter, you've gone just a bit too far. All right, just put it in reverse, and First Peter is where we are. Uh, I was at, uh, was studying at my uh, Fern Creek office there at Panera, on a Friday afternoon, and in walked Judy. Where'd you, there's Judy, right? In walked Judy. Uh, right there, she was grabbing a cup of coffee. She was on her way to Bates Elementary to pick up her a granddaughter, right? Or great-granddaughter, probably, right? Two, yeah, two great... Isn't that incredible? The great-grandma picks them up from school. I mean, how many of you had that happen in your life? And so she was picking them up, and she just said, Michael, she said, I am so excited about the study in the book of First Peter. She said, I've actually already read the first chapter. So, Judy, you get some extra brownie points this morning, all right? And I hope all of you are taking opportunity, as Pastor Dan has put, there in the bulletins for us to not just study this on Sunday mornings, but to study this and rehearse it and to meditate upon these truths uh, during the course of our week to get involved in an encounter group so that you can also continue to dive deeply into this book. Man, this is such a wonderful book, and I believe it's going to be a great encouragement to us. Now, you might, as we, as we think about this, right, you might hear that word, right, the title is First Peter, obviously that means it was written by Peter, which is, a, which is really just a, a great segue from the book of Acts, because if you'll remember, the first half of the book of Acts focus on Peter's role in, in the expanding gospel message, the growing of the church, and then the second half focused on Paul's role. And so here we have, we're kind of going back to Peter himself, uh, and, and this is the continuation, right? This is some of the results as, as the church has been growing. And this book was written there around in the early 60s AD, so uh, po- possibly around 30 years or so later after uh, the church originally began. And you might think, wow, you know, as you, as you think about, look, look here on the screen, you'll see the, the, the title of the, of the entire teaching series is Steadfast or Steadfast Living. And you might think, wow, Peter just doesn't seem to be necessarily the guy for Steadfast Living. Because one reason is because oftentimes we think of Peter as being that guy who denied Christ, right? You, you mention Peter and automatically you just think of, of, of that incident, uh, I think there's also a number of other examples of Peter's hesitation and his selfish st- stubbornness, especially in those original gospel accounts, uh, wherein Peter tended to, at times as he was a disciple, he acted more as a stumbling block rather than the rock on which Christ was going to build his church. And so we think about this idea of steadfast living, and if you, if you think about it just within the context of those gospel accounts of Peter's life, you might say, man, Peter doesn't seem to necessarily be the ideal candidate to be teaching us about steadfast living. 
right? Because it's our tendency to view Peter through that lens of some of his failures there in the gospel accounts. But again, it's there in the book of Acts that we really saw Peter uh, growing in his boldness uh, for the Lord. Uh, we, see, we saw there in the book of Acts how Peter then steps into that leadership role of the expanding movement of the church. And as the church grew in number, we saw that Peter then also grew in his courage and his, and his steadfastness. In fact, sometimes Peter is, is, can sometimes be overshadowed by the Apostle Paul, right? We think of the New Testament and all the writings, and, and we tend to think of the Apostle Paul, but, little, but often we, we forget the fact that actually no one else other than Jesus is mentioned more often in the New Testament than Peter himself. That Peter was a, was a dynamic player. He was a dynamic leader in, in the growth of the church. And I think what we learn from this, right? Because, again, our, our minds, we tend to think of Peter within the context of his failures of denying Christ. But yet here we have this book, First Peter and Second Peter, and, and how we're going to learn what it means to be steadfast, how to, how to live a steadfast life in a, in a culture that is, that is against, that is in opposition to following Jesus. I think what, we're, what we can be encouraged by is how God transformed Peter's life and how you had, in the gospel accounts, Peter was presented somewhat as a coward at times, that he lacked courage, that he lacked steadfastness. But yet through the book of Acts and here in this letter, we're going to see him as being a courageous man of faith, of someone who's steadfast. And what we can learn from that is probably some of us in here, right, we might, we might not think of ourselves, ourselves as very steadfast, right, in the faith maybe today, right? Maybe right now we are timid. Maybe you are a bit shy when it comes to sharing the gospel, right? Maybe even going and handing out free hot dogs this Thursday, that, that might even cause you a little bit of hesitation in this world, right? That's going to, you, maybe even at times we find ourselves hesitant to identify ourselves as a follower of Jesus Christ. I think the beautiful thing about Peter's life and that example is how God takes someone, how Jesus is able to take someone like Peter who was a failure at times, who, who, who lacked courage, who lacked steadfastness, and transformed him into this mighty man of faith. And so if you are here this morning and you might say, boy, this teaching series just doesn't seem like it's going to fit, let me just invite you to join with us in this journey of allowing God to change us, to change us from being hesitant followers of his, to change us from being shy about our faith, and, and to step onto this road, this journey of being transformed. It's not, it's not going to be a, transform, a, a transformation that happens overnight, all right? It requires time. It requires study in God's word. It, it requires other people. As we're going to see this morning, it requires difficult circumstances. And yet God is going to use all of that to help change us. Now this morning, we're going to see that one of the primary themes of First Peter uh, one of the primary themes is that God uses suffering. That God uses suffering as a, as a teacher in helping us become steadfast in, in the faith. That God is going to use suffering. See, Peter, he's writing to these followers of Jesus. His, his, 
His audience is primarily Jewish believers, those who are of Jewish descent and saw the acts of Jesus. They believed in his resurrection and are now followers of Jesus Christ. So his, that's his primary audience. And, and, and this audience there, again, around the early 60s AD, they're starting, they're continuing to experience uh, persecution. They're, st- they're, they're experiencing suffering for being a follower of Jesus Christ. We saw that persecution there in the book of Acts. And, and nearly 30 years later, right, it continues on. This suffering will continue. And so Peter is writing them. And he's helping them put their suffering within context. He's helping them understand that their suffering, uh, that God is using that suffering for a purpose in their life. Now this morning, here's the big idea for this morning's sermon. It's this, it's let Christ and his salvation be your comfort in suffering. Let Christ and his salvation be your comfort in salvation. And we're going to find this to be true. I invite you, go ahead and follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1, and Lord willing, we will make it to verse 12 by the conclusion of our time this morning. And we're going to see the emphasis on salvation, as Michael Fay has already done a wonderful job emphasizing salvation in Christ Jesus, and that is our comfort in suffering. So here we go in verse 1, all right? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in His great mercy, He has given, given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that nev- can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of, of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And in all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith. What is it? The salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with with greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. 
Even angels long to look into these things. Church, even the angels long to look into these truths that we are going to be uncovering here this morning. We find here, as the big idea, the primary theme of our sermon this morning is that let Christ and His salvation be your comfort in our suffering. Peter is focusing on, he's saying, in the midst of your suffering, what do you still have? What is it that they cannot take from you? He is going to say, they cannot take from you your salvation. And so we find here, in the first couple of verses, Peter tells them, he says, your salvation is not dependent on you. He says, your salvation is not dependent on you. Michael helped us see that in, in, in the Rock of Ages song where he said, we can, we can work ourselves to the bone trying to do good deed after good deed after good deed. But if, if that is done without Christ Jesus, then, we, then it's, it's for nothing. We're reminded here in these early verses that your salvation is not dependent on you. Let's go ahead and, and we're just, church, we're going verse by verse by this, all right? And, and we, we start here, there, at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I've already made comments about him. And then he, he jumps right in. And what does he do? He says, to God's elect. We're going to stop right there. I thought we almost could preach an entire sermon just on those couple of verses there. This letter begins with Peter highlighting whose we are whose we are right now I, I don't know Hebrew I don't know Greek but I do know a little bit of English here and I know that when there's an apostrophe s like like that that's a possess that means something or someone possesses something and it says to God's meaning this is God's possession that is being addressed here there's a there's a possessive proclamation right from the start of this letter where Peter is addressing God's, apostrophe S, God's people, God's possession. Peter finds it necessary right out of the gate to remind us that in our suffering, he reminds us whose we are. There's a Burger King advertising jingle. Maybe I've mentioned it before, but I think it's worth mentioning now. There's a, Bur a Burger King advertising jingle. It's a worldly mantra that is sung from the digital chorus of our television screens, and you might know it too, where it says, BK, have it your way, right? Has anyone heard that, right? B now that's going to be stuck in your mind all day long. And now, like, we are all going to be flocking to Burger King for a Whopper. And I've got a, a, a coupon card that gets you a, a buy one, get one free Whopper if you want to use it later. But it, BK, have it your way. And then, then it ends that little mantra with these two words that we've allowed to be ingrained into our heads. You rule. You rule. That's what the world says. It says, you are the master of your own destiny. You rule. That's not what God's word says. In church, there is no hope if I rule. Peter tells us, he says, he says, you are God's possession. 
But not only are we God's possession, we are his children. Because in just a few words, it's going to highlight how God the Father is involved in our salvation. That we are his children. We are his most prized possession. That God holds us up with his righteous right hand. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 41, 8 through 10, it says, But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, listen to this, whom I have chosen. He says, You descendants of Abraham, my friend. He says, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners. I called you. I said, You are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not rejected you. So do not fear. For I am with you. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. He says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So church, we think about this again. The the recipients of this letter are enduring suffering. Or or suffering is, is on the horizon for them. And Peter gives them these words and says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are dearly loved. Praise God, you don't rule. But Jesus does. All right, when a child is feel, filled with fear and uncertainty, or maybe a child is facing troubling circumstances, what do they do? They turn to their parent and they say, Mom or Dad, won't you hold me? They reach out for the strong hand of a loving father, the strong or the warm embrace of a loving mother, and, and, and they don't deny that. And that's the picture, especially there in, in Isaiah 41, verse eight, 8, verses and 10. It's that he upholds us with his righteous right hand that, that we are God's possession. And we do not need to fear. Right? If, if we do rule... If we are the masters of our own destiny, what happens is that when suffering enters into the picture, if I do rule, and if I'm the one who is, who is laying out the future before me, what happens is, is when suffering enters into the picture, I find myself crushed and demoralized. I grow, I grow, I grow bitter and I grow angry toward God. I shake my fist at God. I curse at God and I say, how could you do this to me? I deserve better. Look at all that I've done for you. And this is how it ends. Church, I wonder if maybe for our young people, we are setting them up for a life of of hardship and bitterness because we've forgotten to teach them that they are God's very possession. That they are God's. And when we understand that we are God's possession, that we are His, and that His ways are best, then we do not curse God during suffering but instead we learn to trust God. We look to the cross and we say, how, how much does, does, does God the Father love me? He sent His Son to die on the cross for me. I can trust Him in this suffering. So knowing that we are God's possession, this does not make us passive players in the game of life, but instead it makes us faithful followers trusting God in the plans that He has laid out for us. 
And then we go on, it says Peter also describes the readers as being exiles in a foreign land. It says they are strangers or sojourners who are outside the city limits of their homeland, right? I wonder, church, do you ever feel yourself lost in this world? Do you ever feel, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as if you just don't fit in? Does there seem to be an, almost uh, an estrangement from the world? Do, do you ever find yourself at odds when it comes to moral standards, entertainment, and leisure choices? Do you ever find yourself at odds with the world when it comes to life goals or time and money investments, political views, adherence to truth and wisdom? Right, sometimes I think we spend, our, we spend our time thinking too much about being accepted by the world. Maybe we experience the fear of not fitting in. In this opening verse, Peter instructs us to not be concerned about the fact that we are strangers living in a foreign land. These feelings are natural, should be natural for us, that we feel alien, that we feel as if we're foreigners. Let this reality comfort you when you feel alone or when you're lost or living, or you feel as if you're lost or living as an outsider of the, world, of the world. Because living in obedience to the Lord is difficult. Did you notice there, right? What does it say there at the end of verse 2? It says to be what? To be obedient to Jesus Christ. Right? We are aliens in this world because we do not obey the orders of this world's mantras. The fact that you are a follower of Jesus Christ makes you weird to the world. Right? I mean, we, we all can turn to each other, turn to our neighbor and say, did you know that the world thinks you're a weirdo? <laughs> makes us weird. We're different. And church, the less you fit into this world, all right, let, let me say it this, all right? The more you grow in your relationship with Jesus, the less you'll fit into this world. Right? If, you, if you feel like there's no difference between you and the world, that like there's no separation and you feel like you fit in pretty good, then I'm going to challenge you and say, I want you to do a heart check and check your walk with Jesus. And then verse 2, all right, we, we continue on. It says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. We see here that the work of salvation, again, this is a salvation that's not dependent on you. You are God's elect. You've been chosen by God. This work of salvation that's described, it's, it's a combined effort of the triune Godhead, right? This isn't just like Jesus' side gig, this isn't Jesus' side hustle here. It's like, well, I think I'm, you know, hey, these people down on earth, they're kind of messed up. I better go and do my thing for them, and then I'll come back, and, and, and I'll reign forever, right? No, what we see here is Peter says that your salvation, that our salvation was, was the work of a triune God, that God the Father, that God the Son, that God the Holy Spirit, all three are involved in it. You see there it says, according to the foreknowledge of who? Of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and, what? and sprinkled with His blood. 
we're reminded here that genuine saving faith always produces obedience and submission to Jesus Christ. A person who claims faith in Jesus Christ, but who, whose pattern of life is disobedience to God's word, has not been redeemed and is living a lie. Faith shows itself in obedience. And Peter is helping them to see that as they go into this time of suffering and persecution, he's helping them to know that you will remain obedient to Jesus. He's giving them that instruction. And then verse 2 ends, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter's prayer for these people is that the grace of God would continue to increase. So this first, these first two verses, again, suffering, all right, is that your salvation is not dependent on you. God's, you are God's possession. He'll protect you. Then the next point here is this. Point number two is that your salvation then is secure. I mean, isn't this, right, this, uh, this might be a concern, right, as you're going through, through suffering, right? Is, is something going to happen to my salvation, right? When, when everything else around me seems to f- be falling apart, Peter is, is, is letting them know that, that your salvation will not fail you. During hard times or seasons of difficulty, we find ourselves fear, fearful of losing what we have. Maybe during a season of relational conflict, we fear losing a friendship. During a season of illness, we fear losing a loved one. During a time of social or political oppression, we fear losing freedoms. When the economy is on a roller coaster ride, we fear losing money. In verses 3 through 5, Peter emphasizes how that which, that which truly matters, our salvation, is eternally secure. And if our salvation is eternally secure, he is saying, then you have no reason to fear because they can't take from you that which is of greatest importance. Verse 3, and this is where they break, this is where, where Peter breaks out in a doxology, almost in a song. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter wants the readers to draw their eyes away from the difficult circumstances and to lift their eyes heavenward. He, he invites the readers of this letter into an attitude of worship. And the reason why Peter is overwhelmed with worship is because of God's mercy and provision of new life. He says there, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. And then we continue on in verse 4. It says, and, and right, we're, we've been given this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think, again, right, what was Paul's primary message there in the book of Acts? That Jesus is alive. Peter is right following, right in line with that. Jesus is alive, and because of that resurrection, we, we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse 4, he says, and, and also we've been, we, we will enter into an inheritance that what can never perish spoil or fade he says this inheritance is kept where in heaven for you those who are saved are promised an eternal inheritance and peter describes an inheritance that is reserved for us 
And it's the same, this church, let this kind of blow your mind for a little bit. That the same inheritance that God the Father promises to His Son, Jesus Christ, is the same inheritance that is promised to you. That the inheritance that God the Father has reserved for His Son, He now shares it, right? He shares with all those who have been adopted into His family. And then verse 4, it brings attention to the eternal care that is given to the believer's inheritance. Notice there, and Michael touched on this earlier, it says the inheritance will never what? It will never perish. It means it, will never, it, it won't be corrupted or it won't come to ruin. Right? It, it won't experience decay. It won't be ravaged or taken by hostile forces. He goes on then and he says the inheritance will never spoil. Your inheritance is in perfect condition, free from any spot of dirt or pollution on it. It has nothing in it that defiles it. Our inheritance is kept pure. And then he goes on, he says, the inheritance will never fade. It's not going to be affected or impaired by time Right? The believer's inheritance will never lose its luster as time goes on. That inheritance is kept carefully. It's carefully guarded. It's kept safe. Where? In heaven. Where moth and rust and thieves cannot take it from us. And then in verse 5, look at this. It says, who through faith are shielded by God's power. It's, it's as if, right, it's, it's there in heaven. It's kept for us. It won't perish. It won't spoil. It won't fade. And then look who's guarding it. It says, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In verse 5, Peter is reminding the believers the protection that they have, which is sustained by the power of God. Not only is God keeping our inheritance safely guarded in heaven, but He is safely guarding it to one day receive it. And so our salvation, our salvation in this world and our eternal salvation that we will experience by, by receiving His inheritance, it is, it is fast and it is secure. The imagery here is used of that a protective guard or a military garrison that's keeping watch over the believer's life. Our inheritance, right? That not only is the inheritance guarded, but we too are guarded. And the implication then is this. Hear me on this, church. That because your salvation is secure, because your inheritance is secure, what does that free us up to do? It frees us up to live confidently for the Lord in the world in which we live. Because our salvation is not dependent on our present circumstances, because it's already been accomplished, God is, right, God is, God is waiting for that moment in time when, when He will send Jesus back to receive His own unto Himself, and we will then enter into uh, e that eternal life that He's promised for us then, for those who are st still alive at that time, that they will experience that, that because we have the confidence that our salvation is indeed secure, then we have nothing to fear. We have no reason to live 
a life steadfastly for the Lord. And then point number three is that your salvation is reason, look at this, to rejoice in suffering. Alright, so keep in mind, right, he's addressing these people who are, who are entering into seasons of suffering. And, and what does he do? He says, that your, right, he says that your salvation is not your own doing. He says your salvation is secure. And now he's going to say that your salvation is reason to rejoice in suffering. Look how verse 6 begins. He says, in all this you what? You greatly do what? Rejoice. He's speaking to those who are experiencing hardship. Peter tells us that we have great reason to rejoice even in times of deep heartache. And the joy described is displayed an outward way, right? It's not just, it's not like just some sort of verbal acknowledgement, right? Someone says, how are you doing, right? I know you've been going through a, a troubled time. You know, it's like, well, I'm, I'm rejoicing, you know? Instead, he, he says that this is displayed in an outward expression. It literally means to rejoice here. It literally means to jump or leap with happy excitement. It's an exuberant spirit. Picture it in this, in this way. It's like the kid who is leaving the candy shop with a bag full of jelly beans and they are now skipping down the sidewalk. That is, and why is that our attitude? Is, 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 do I rejoice because I rule? <laughs> And this is the destiny, and now the life that I had planned, now I'm experiencing suffering, and boy, I have great reason to rejoice because this ain't what I planned because I rule, I'm the master. No, we rejoice because we are God's possession, because salvation is dependent on Him, because that salvation is secure, that our inheritance cannot be touched by the, by the, the ways of the people of this world. And He says, because you are saved, you have great reason to rejoice. Peter acknowledges that we do find ourselves. I think it's helpful. He says Peter acknowledges that we do find ourselves filled with grief and suffering. Right? He says, he says though now, in verse 6, he says, in all this you great, greatly rejoice. He says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Again, it, it, it is that paradox, right? That, that, that kind of, that juxtaposition almost of joy and suffering for the believer, where we do have this grief of, of, of a natural, that, that's a natural response to our suffering in a fallen world, right? We, we can't just glaze over the pain, but at the same time, we don't act as if we've been defeated or that somehow suffering now has the upper hand. We don't act as if the hardship, the persecution, the heartache, we don't act as if it has gotten the best of us. I think we should remember Jesus' instructions to his disciples there in John 16 where he said, I have told you these things, right? You, many of you know these verse, this verse. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. He says, in this world you will have trouble. 
right? He, he tells them, he says, you will have trouble. You will experience hardship in this world. But he says, but what? But take heart. Why do we take heart? Because Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And verses 6 through 9, then follow along with me. Peter identifies several reasons why we can have joy amid the trials. I'll, I'll go ahead and, and read verses uh, 7 through 9 here, all right? So we've experiencing suffer grief and all kinds of trials. End of verse 6. Now in verse 7, he says, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. First, what we see, again, in, verse, in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, we're going to see here, especially in verse 7, that, that we can rejoice. Why? Because suffering has a way of proving our faith. Did you see it there in verse 7? It says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith. In these verses, Peter is focusing his attention on the final product. Right? Our salvation or our faith will be proven genuine. How? Through suffering. Suffering, church, has a way of proving that your faith is the real deal. George Mueller once said that God delights to increase the faith of his children through trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats. Trials are the very food of faith. Trials are the very food of faith. Then it goes on. Then verse 7 concludes with this promise, right? right? Why, why can we rejoice in our suffering? Because honor is promised to us. Verse 7 concludes by telling us that there's an honor awaiting us because of the suffering that we're willing to receive because of Jesus Christ. There's a future glory that we will share with Christ Jesus. And so we endure these sufferings. We endure this, this difficulty, this hardship. Yesterday, uh, the, several of the boys and I, we were out working and, and doing some hard work. And uh, 5 o'clock rolled around and I kind of released them. I said, okay guys, you can go and... One of them wanted to watch football, and the other one, I don't know what the other one wanted to do, probably watch football too. And, and then one of them, uh, Anders, he stuck around with me. And uh, Anders said, Dad, he said, are you, uh, are you, are, are you going to stop now? I said, no. I, I said, there's still a number of things I want to get done. And uh, then he, listen to this, he asked me this question. He said, Dad, will you throw the football with me when we're done, when you're done? I said, yeah, buddy, I'll throw the football with you when, when we're done. And he said, okay, Dad, then I'll stay here and keep working with you. And so we did. For the next 30, 45 minutes, he stuck around while his other brothers were off watching football. He, why did he stick around? Why did he continue around to endure such hardship? <laughs> As they probably would describe it sometimes, suffering and persecution on the Bame farm. Yeah, why did they stick around? Why did he stick around? Because there was a promise that was made to him. Because there was a promise there. And what was that promise? That his dad would throw the football with him. He said, I I'll continue for another 45 minutes to go through this. Because you've promised something to me. 
And you see, there, there's an honor that is promised to us. That, that it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We will praise, glory, and honor Jesus Christ, but yet there also will be a glory that's revealed in us. And then, then also, what's another reason why we can endure, why we should rejoice, not just endure, but actually rejoice in our suffering? It's because we grow in our love for Christ through suffering. The suffering we experience has a way of drawing us closer to the Lord the love and care we receive from the invisible Christ in this world and from his body where Christ is made visible, that care helps us to grow in our love for Jesus and to trust him more and more. Suffering has a way of drawing us closer to the Lord, not pushing us further away. And look at, so with that thought in mind, look at verse 8. It says, though you have not seen him, it's talking about Jesus, says, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. I love him in, even in this time of suffering. It has a way of pulling me into Jesus. It has me a, a way of trusting the one whom I've yet not seen. And it says, even though you do not see him now, what do you, you, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. How do we grow in our love for this one whom we have not seen? How do, we, how, how do we grow in our faith? How do we believe in him? How are we filled? With, it's, it's because through times of trial, we allow our faith to lead us deeper into our relationship with our Savior. And then it says, then another way, how, how can we rejoice in our suffering? It says all of our suffering is working toward the end result of faith. Verse 9. He says, for you are receiving the end result of your salvation, of, of, of your faith. What is it? It's the salvation of your souls, right? That there's an end result that all these things are working together toward. And we see here, right, that perseverance is possible when we're focused on these promises that we too can be like Anders and say, hey, if, if I stick around, like if I continue to go through this, is this going to be promised to me? And we have a loving father who says, yes, all of this and more. Verses 10 through 12. Man, you read this, and this is where, where I'll land the plane. Verses 10 through 12, you read it, and you think, that just doesn't make sense, right? Why would Peter include this? He says this. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. When, and you might underline this. When he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and, what, and the glories that would follow, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that they have now been told by you, uh, told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look in, into these things. What what Peter is saying, again, within the context of these, these followers of Jesus Christ and their suffering and how he's telling them to rejoice even at, that there's a comfort that you can have because of the salvation. That's your greatest comfort in life and in death is that you are saved. And he uses the example of Jesus' suffering 
to give them hope, to give them comfort. And what does he do? He says that even Jesus' suffering was prophesied hundreds of years previous. That Jesus and his suffering that he went through on your behalf and on my behalf, that that just was not just like, a, like God thinking, wow, what do I do now? But instead, he is saying that even Jesus' sufferings were long prophesied. Peter is, he's helping us to see that God is sovereign over Jesus' suffering on the cross. And that if God is sovereign over Jesus' suffering that took place on the cross, then God is also sovereign and in control over your sufferings. And he says, I I love this, it, it says in verse 12, it says it was revealed to them, it was revealed to the prophets of the Old Testament, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. And he is saying that, that you can have this great confidence that you have not been forgotten in your suffering. You can have this great confidence that is because the prophets, they wrote it down. The, the suffering servant that Isaiah tells us about, they wrote it down hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, before Jesus even entered into this world. He's saying you can have confidence that that same one who was sovereign over your Savior's suffering, that he is also sovereign over you. He's saying, and, and they have served you with these hopeful words. Church, he is helping us to be reminded that God has not forgotten us. That what we are going through, that what you're going through, is not outside of a loving Heavenly Father's control. And that God is still at work And I don't know what it is that you might be experiencing. It could be suffering. It could be persecution. It could be opposition from others, from non-believers, from neighbors, from family members, from co-workers. But it also could be the suffering of an illness, of, of a terminal disease. It could be the suffering that you've experienced of the loss of a loved one. It could be the suffering that you've experienced of a a relationship that you'd gotten into that just hasn't worked out. We all have different types of suffering. And Peter begins this incredible letter and he says, understand that your greatest comfort in your suffering is the fact that you are eternally secure, that you are saved. Church, if God did not abandon Jesus and His suffering... If God did not abandon Jesus to the grave, then we too can be confident that God has not and will not abandon you. And so what is our great comfort? Is that Christ and His salvation comforts us in our suffering. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray now that your spirit would allow these truths uh, to be driven deep into our hearts and allow these truths then to be lived out uh, in our daily lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And this morning we do.